All right, we are uh, uh, one minute past three o'clock central, so I will uh, start as uh, we'll get going here on, on uh, Call and Shots episode three. I am Seth Partnow from The Athletic and Stats Bomb and uh, the, the, the book The Midrange Theory, but you probably already know that if you're following this. Uh, my guest today is uh, Kosta Medvedovsky. Uh, we're going to talk some. Uh, we're going to, we're going to talk uh, descriptive versus predictive analytics, and and uh, why Darko hates your favorite players and likes Darius Garland too much, and and uh, everything else. But go and go from there. But uh, Costa, why don't you uh, in, introduce yourself and and uh, um, for the folks who aren't familiar with you, tell them uh, uh, why they should listen to you. <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Seth, and thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm the creator of uh, the Darko box score uh, and I guess player impact projection system. Uh, you can find it at Darko.app. Uh, and so Darko is sort of a, like I said, a box score projection system for like fantasy basketball kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I'm also a lawyer in my part in my spare time. Uh, you're, uh, he's, he's also, he's being a little, a little bit uh, 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 overly modest there. He's a, a very well-regarded um, antitrust attorney, um, if I if I can uh, be so bold as to say that is that is that fair enough? Sure, that's that's very kind. <laughs> sure. So let's let's get right into it. I think one of the things that sort of uh, um, uh, at least the terminological piece that that tends to trip people up a lot when they are talking about uh, statistics in general and sports analytics, sports statistics in particular is um, what does it mean to be descriptive? What does it mean to be predictive? Uh, and why is that distinction important? Um, and this is something we've talked a lot about. So uh, offline, and I think that's a, that's a good place to start because I think a lot of, a lot of the mistakes kind of we see in the public applications of analytics are not really understanding that they're even, that they're a, that there is a distinction and b kind of, what and how to draw it? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. It's a hard question because, uh, like, the two are, are, are really closely tied up to each other. Um, you know, I think at the simplest terms, you can say, like, you know, who scored the most points uh, is a descriptive statistic, whereas something that predicts who's going to score the most points going forward is a predictive metric. Um, and, like, that, that makes sense. Um, but it gets, a, like, a lot trickier when you get into questions of who was the MVP, like I'm going to describe who the most valuable player was um, as opposed to like predicting who's going to be the best player next year. Um, and that's where the two get like really intermeshed and you get, you get these almost philosophical debates about uh, RAPM. Uh, is that a descriptive or a predictive metric? Cause it has like features of both, but it's uh, it's based purely on old, you know, play by play, uh, data, um, but it's calibrated internally to predict uh, within itself. Um, and so, like, is that a predictive metric or a descriptive metric? It's it's like a little of both. Um, and, and sort of my, my as, as I do more and more modeling, my, my philosophy here is you, you got to think about both problems at the same time. And that you know, if your descriptive model is like has no predictive power. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that it's actually describing anything meaningful. Meaningful. You've just like built a, you, you built a some kind of overfit model, or you've built something that's just like, you know, you might be. I, I think the classic example we talk about is a 
uh, a basketball model that, that really, really values defensive rebounds. Um, defensive rebounds correlate very, very well with past wins. Uh, so like, oh, defensive rebounds are the most important uh, thing in the world. Uh, it's a great descriptive model. But like really all you're capturing is that uh, <laughs> the defense made a lot of, made the, made the opposing team miss a lot of shots. Uh, so like that's not really that useful a descriptive model even. So that's it, very much a yes. If you play better, you win. I think actually in sort of uh, people trying to apply kind of stats to basketball, I think the the mistake that that we see more often now is sort of the um, kind of either single game plus minus or um, my personal bugaboo, the individual ratings. Uh, oh yeah, a thing. Um, and I think that that's it's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's commonly understood. Kind of how little that on on a small sample especially on a small sample but how little that tells you about like how a player contributed to 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 that that that, that is a i mean that is a perfectly dis, like perfectly accurate description of what happened when this player was on the court his team outscored the opponent by X or was outscored by Y, and in so many possessions they give they gave up or scored so many points. That's 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 perfectly uh, within kind of the weirdness of possession counts, but we can kick that to the side for a moment. That's perfectly descriptive, but sort of the jump, the the natural jump to to therefore he was good, he was the cause of that. Um, that seems like something that that trips people up a lot. Even people who are, especially I would say people who are trying to become more kind of literate in the statistical side of of, of the game and, and understanding of the game. Yeah, I mean, you, with that kind of stuff, you especially run into, just at the outset, you run into huge sample issues. Uh, just like single game samples, you know, a guy uh, makes or misses, um a couple of extra shots or, or like worse when you're on the bench, uh, your opponents like make or miss a few extra shots. And it just like has these huge, huge swings. Um, and I, I think it's not intuitive for a lot of people. It's not, not intuitive for me uh, how big a sample it takes for that kind of data to become meaningful. Um, I think fa- famous uh, Kawhi Leonard had some like uh, half season long or almost season long bizarreness with uh, opponent free throw shooting when he was off the court, which caused his like on off to be terrible. Um, so there's just like sample issues uh, right off the bat. And then, you know, within that divvying up the credit, so like how much credit do you really deserve for your on off is like a whole other can of worms. Yeah, we saw, I mean, I think a more, a more pertinent example is before he missed, missed some time with injuries this year. Um, John Morant saw a huge swing in opponent three point, like, Opponent shot something like ten or eleven percent better on threes with him on the court than with off him off the court for the for the first chunk of the season this year. And you know, is that is is one player conceivably somewhat responsible for opponent like shooting better from three? Uh, yeah, um, is any player ever um, that's an NBA that's an NBA level player could they possibly be uh, you know? responsible for even a, a fraction of that kind of percentage difference. Um, I strongly doubt it. Um, but that's sort of, it's the kind of thing that like just makes everything about like looking at so many of the things we look at makes it just weird. 
Yeah, that's a great example. And, you know, a bunch of people take different approaches for that sort of thing. Some people, you know, there's Ryan Davis runs uh, NBA shot charts, which, you know, has RAPM and also has luck adjusted RAPM. And he tries to adjust for that sort of shooting. Um, And you can, like, make an opinionated call about how much to account for that sort of, you know, people call it luck. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of the current sort of, this NBA sabermetric consensus that there's very little uh, or to, to no impact that, he, you know, sounds like you are as well. Uh, um, I don't know. I, so this, so I am, I am skeptical that, 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 yeah, that on jump shots, like percentages um, observed uh, is, is a, a good enough metric to help us pick out the signal from the noise. I think yeah, there, are, there are clearly things teams can do to lower like opponent shooting percentage, and you can you can tell that any number of ways. I mean, you the 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 quickest one is is even on open shots, controlling for you know some broad measure of shooter quality, like open open catch and shoot jumpers, like go down in in accuracy the the last couple seconds of a shot clock, which indicates that there's. There's some element of like player when some element of like choosing to shoot or not is removed, like you get some like poorer attempts in. And if if that's the case, then that that probably you know that 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 you can extrapolate from that to say yes, there are things defense can do to affect that, but it's that that effect is just is is dwarfed by does the ball go in or not. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. If you're just looking at the raw shooting percentage, you're probably not going to extract that much. But as you get to, like, more and more granular data of looking, you know, l- looking at shot type, who, the, who, how open the guy was, the, the action on the play, I think we're going to find more and more uh, signal there. And that, that requires probably more granular data than we have super easily accessible. Um, the comparison I always look, think to here is uh, with baseball. Baseball had a, a major revolution like 20 years ago. Uh, Boris McCracken uh, sort of concluded that batting average on balls in play seemed to have no year-to-year consistency. But then we got more and more granular data, and we started looking at, uh, oh, you know, ground, ball, ground balls have a, a higher batting average on balls in play than fly balls. And we started getting lefty-righty splits and knuckleball stuff, and now we're looking at spin rates. And, and as the data gets better, these sorts of elements that I think correctly are sort of tie, uh, tied up, uh, ascribed to luck, uh, sort of come out less and less looking like luck and sort of, I think, the conventional wisdom of old NBA minds tends to be borne out uh, with more granular data a lot of times. Sure. Uh, before, like, as we're going, uh, folks folks in the audience, if you got a question for, for, for either of us, please uh, raise your hand and we'll, we'll bring you up on stage and, and chat. So I want... So, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the the ethic behind Darko and sort of the predictiveness and and within that kind of interpretability. I think when you first developed it, one of its first big calls was Jamal Murray was going to be really good, and this was like pre bubble. And then like from then until his his knee injury, Jamal Murray was in fact very good. So um, not to ask you to take a victory lap, but you know. Um, like what is it picking up, and what does that mean for other players that uh, that that the 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 model is high on? Um, you know, 
not least of which is, is Darius Garland, who, so to, to catch people up, um, there's recently been a little bit of a roiling debate among what I might call nerd slack in uh, 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 where Darius Garland's future should stack up to, next to John Morant's. And I think people who are, are putting Garland on that level already are getting way ahead of themselves, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you, uh, you um, kind of talk through that and, and explain, explain your side of that story. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Darko, you know, generally, is, like I said, it's a box score prediction system at the core. It, what it does is it takes, uh, I think I'm tracking currently 85 different box score metrics. Um, and I'm, lo- I'm looking at them and looking at what each player's history is in every stat. Um, and the big sort of thing I do is I apply... Uh, an exponential decay to every uh, to all those stats, meaning I uh, weight performance in, uh, in stats more heavily based on how recent it is, but I don't throw out any data. So every game a player has ever played is part of their uh, their projection uh, for each in each box score stat, but it just gets like decayed um, by you know x to the power of how many days ago it was. So it has like very little impact over time. Um, you know, and I optimize separately for each stat. And so it gives a, uh, a fairly interpretable feature set because I have, I, I can, t- I can tell, um, this, you know, Jamal Murray's free throw talent is this high. Um, his, uh, three point shooting talent, uh, you know, based on this exponential decay is this high, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, I combine them all, you know, uh, I, I combine them all to create an, an impact metric. Um, you know, it's probably most similar to uh, Jacob Goldstein's old PIPM, except it's purely predictive. It's, it's fit purely to predict future impact rather than look, uh, look at backwards impact. Um, and so with Murray, uh, whenever I looked, what, what I was seeing was it was in love with his free throw, uh, his free throw percentage. Uh, whenever I, I asked like Darko to make predictions more than, you know, like the next day to like a year out, two years out, it really focus, hones in a lot at free throw percentage. And to tie it back to Garland, I think that that's likewise what's going on there. Uh, Darko just loves, you know, he's like 92% or something from uh, the line this year. And it, it finds that that's very predictive. So I guess the, the the question there is is uh, and this is getting into something that you are you're, you're currently working on. I mean you uh, you you um, have recently uh, promulgated a, a set of like predictions because it's it's sort of it's it's uh, in sort of the take business. It's easy to kind of fire and forget, except to remember the times you were right. And I think you I think you'd agree that you you learn a lot more from the times you were wrong, or even from the times you were right for the wrong reasons. So, um, what would you say are, are things you've sort of learned about both the interpretability of this and ways you would, you might either in the presence of better data or with the existing kind of box score slash play by play level data to, to, to make these predictions better, to kind of avoid edge cases, to, to, you know, hone in on what's actually going on. Like the, the instant thing that, that you know, and, and we talked about this offline, that, that um, I'm wondering is like, um, should, should uh, attempt rate kind of interacting with percentage on free throws be, be, be the thing, not just the percentage? Because it, it strikes me that the players who uh, not only shoot really well from the line, which in, indicates, I, I think, 
like kind of touch shooting talent, whatever you want to call it, but also have a high attempt rate to indicate kind of the athleticism to to beat defenders, create advantages, the cleverness to do so. Like that seems almost like from a a basketball standpoint, that seems like really the thing that like this guy's got something here, uh, rather than just the guy who you know can can make shots from ten feet with nobody around them. Or yeah, I mean, feet, I. Me. I don't want to suggest the attempt rate's not not important, and uh, you know I don't want to without getting too deep in the weeds here. Yeah. Um, when I when I do these models, it's I, I'm mostly using a, a gradient boosted decision tree model um, to combine these various features. And, and one of the nice things about about those types of models is that they do look at interaction effects. They're they're not it's a non linear model, meaning it sort of can look at not just your free throw uh percentage, not just your free throw attempt rate, but also like how those two interact with each other. Um and you know in this case I am sort of counting on that interaction effect being captured. Uh but yeah absolutely you know they're they're both critical. If you have a you know there's a there's a lot of guys out there with really high free throw percentages uh you know who if they if they just never shoot, uh, never get to the line, it's like it doesn't really manifest necessarily. Um, I, and I you know I say this as someone who shot a hundred percent in college. I was uh, four for four in my college career, but the uh, the four should indicate um, much more about my abilities as a player as the hundred uh, <laughs> percent should. Uh, so I, I is sort of the the like you know the the thought process there. Um, what kinds of what kind of predictions are you interested in making? Uh, now and, and and sort of what are you what are you testing either about your model or your intuition for the game or the interaction of both? Uh, well, for, for for Darko, the next the big thing I'm trying to move to Darko is mostly calibrated right now to like predicting the next day's results, um, and I've been doing more and more work on uh, you know expanding that timeline of like you know looking at next year, the next five years. Um, uh, and sort of expand, expanding the timeline that I'm looking at um, as it's not going to be a big shock. Uh, that turns out to be a lot harder. Um, and we, you really run into a host of uh, survivorship issues um, that uh, when you look at like five years, uh, your, your sample of players uh, who like mate who survive five years um, is, is, is strongly biased. It's like only the good players do the bad players sort of wash out. And so my, my sample, your sample gets uh, skewed. And so you get sort of funny results. You have to put in a lot of effort towards calibration. And that, that's really, I'd say my, my big project right now on the Darko side. Um, sure. Uh, I guess uh, we got, we got Sean who's uh I guess had a question. If you can un- unmute yourself and uh, and uh, let us know what you want to know. Yeah, what's up, Seth? Uh, I'm Costa. What's good, man? Um, hey. So, obviously, you know, Seth, I read your book. Um, Costa, I read your website and all that. But there's uh, one thing that I've I've been trying to figure out for a while. That uh, it has to do with the shooting luck, and it has to do with regression to the mean, stuff like that, like when something's real. So you talk about how you use the exponential decay. You talk about how, I, I know both of you talk a lot about luck, but like, so Costa, I know you're a Celtics fan too. Yeah. So you know where I'm going with this. Um, so like Jason Tatum this year, right? So like, 
if you have he has four years plus playoffs plus college he has all this data on him as you know a really elite shooter a great step back shooter um great you know creating his own shot um you know, and at times, I mean, like, what was it, 40% rookie year, over 40, or 43%, over 40% uh, two years later. It's, it's always in the high 30s, at least. And then in the playoffs, it goes down a little bit. But And then this year, it's just fallen off a cliff. And, you know, the first month of the season, we're all saying it's just shooting luck and it's going to come back. And I know he always has the rough start. It's the thing every year. But usually the rough start is a 1-18 game in November, and then he's on fire by now. And we're in January, and it's still down at, what, 31%, 32%. And it's like, at what point is – I just want to know at what point you consider it no longer shooting luck and you consider it real. Well, so, you know, the, the answer is, like, a little bit of a continuum. And that's, that's the, uh, the nice part of the exponential decay approach, that, you know, each additional three-point attempt he misses sort of, like, decreases his projection. Um, and the answer, you know, is it real or not? It, you know, there is no answer. There's like, it's here, here's my, my best guess, uh, for like where his, his talent goes. And if you want to, uh, you, you can generate like a, a confidence interval around that. So I'm, I'm looking at Darko now. It's got him at 37% from three, which is, you know, well below, uh, where he's been over his career. Um, and, but there's, there's like no, there's no single answer of like, okay, this is real. And now he's a 32% guy. No, it's, it's like each additional attempt informs us more. And they're more, the more recent ones are more informative than the older ones. Um, you know, with Tatum in particular, he's got a situation where he, he really complained a lot about, uh, breathing issues, um, after coming back from COVID. So maybe we want to be a little bit more credulous of that. I don't have a COVID variable in Darko. Um, I've sort of thought about it, but the, the data turns out to be hard to, to get. And I, I think I'd also say that, that um, on, on some level, this is where, uh, you know, it's almost the flip side of what we said earlier about, about you know, the data and the f- sufficiency of the data. I think qualitatively, he's always been someone who's taken hard shots. I think this year, kind of as a function of Boston's overall kind of, like dearth of shot creation. Uh, and I think to some degree him, um, uh, frankly, dwelling on the ball too much. Um, I think he's ending up taking a, a tougher mix of shots, which then, you know, kind of combines with what is normal variance. And then uh, what has been, I think, I think demonstrably a more difficult shooting environment, like league wide this year than, than, than in last year and, and in, in the bubble. Um, and those things have kind of combined to mean he has a poor season. Um, now, poor season doesn't isn't you know player, players have have good years and bad years. So it's it's that's the the you know the thought process I think behind Darko is you 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 take it all in and maybe you adjust your uh, your your opinion of his of his you know quote unquote shooting talent downwards a little bit from this year. But as you said, as as, as you asked him the question, Sean, like uh you've got you've got a pretty robust sample of him being a very good shooter and he didn't forget how. Um so and there's without you know, without again knowing with any any sort of like underlying injury situation. I think it's just, you know, on some level like sometimes you just play bad. Um and that's 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 not a very uh that's not a very satisfying answer, but like Jason James just hadn't played very well this year. Uh, and you know there there are reasons for that, but you know that that's that's kind of what happens sometimes. 
And uh, this, uh, this is a good example also of uh, uh, we, we interaction effects you can sort of think about. You know, I'm looking at his free throw percentage. It's at 84%, which is exactly his career average. That's like a pretty good indication. It's not like, you know, his elbow's busted or he's hiding some at least obvious injury. Because, you know, if the two, if they collapsed to, together, I'd be a lot more worried. Yeah, like like when when uh, when Russell Westbrook's like shooting percentages really started to crater, like it wasn't just that oh he's 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 never been a great three point shooter and that's fallen off. It's like oh he's shooting like sixty seven percent from the line now too. So it's like something something has really happened here. So there's been some sort of material decline, um, and so it's not it's not just a a taking terrible shots issue. It's also a not as good a shooter as early in his career kind of thing. And that, like you say, that, that hasn't happened. Um, but I, you know, I do, I like, since we're on the Celtics and you're a Celtics fan, let's, let's riff on this a little bit. Um, I sort of, the, 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 the questions come up. Um, I, I, I um, you know, the, should, should the Celtics break these pair up? And, and, you know, then the, the counter is often like, uh, well, you, you have two star wings and, and why would you want to do that since everyone needs star wings? And and I think the the, the truth is somewhere in between there. Um, be, like while the Celtics do are one of the few teams to have two high level wings, it's also they have two of the lower level high level wings. And so it's it's sort of it's not the same thing. It's not you know it's it's uh, if you have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, that's a categorically di- healthy, of course. That's a categorically different thing. Than, than Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum. And, and you know, you can talk about the areas why. You, may, you, might, you might mention defense, so that's tough to measure. Uh, you might say that, like, hey, these other guys are, tend to be more efficient scorers and or better playmakers, ind- individual playmakers for others uh, than, than these two are. And that's, I think, that lack of, you know, the, the Celtics have had definitely a drain on playmaking talents over the last few years, whether it's, you know, even Gordon Hayward leaving, um, no longer having either Kemba Walker or Kyrie Irving, and all of a sudden they're left with sort of two guys who can create for themselves okay and for others a little bit, um, and then Dennis Schroeder and then kind of not much else in terms of who can deliver the ball to, you know, Robert Williams or whoever else to, to finish plays. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I thought the playmaking is really the, uh, for, or at least for me, where I, where I point, put the blame on. Uh, you know, I love Tatum. Uh, he is not developed as a playmaker, I think, as much as, as we'd hoped. Uh, you know, it's a, for a team that's going to lean on him as the primary uh, primary scorer, and it's, in a lot of a lot of units, primary ball handler, uh, that's a little bit of a problem. Which you know, especially when combined with I would say increasingly dicey shot selection, although that might be somewhat of a function of uh, who else is on the court with him too. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if uh, he was Kawhi Leonard, if you really have like a top five guy, yeah, you can get away with that a lot easier. And he's just like not quite good enough uh, yet, uh, at least this year. And that's and that's that's sort of the dirty little secret. It's not even a secret really more anymore about the NBA is that. Like small differences are, are like lead to huge impacts. Um, like is like is Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard healthy is is a little bit better at a, at a few things, few very impactful things. But that small gap in like you know efficiency and playmaking and defensive impact, 
leads to sort of massive differences in impact when you get at the very top of the uh, kind of the talent pyramid. Um, Arnold yeah. is. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. If you had something to add to that, and then we'll bring Arnold no, up and just... ask his question. I was just uh, going to uh, emphasize my agreement with that point. Cool. Arnold, if you can uh, un- unmute and uh, fire away, what you got for us? Uh, hi, guys. I'm really big fans of both of your, both you guys. Um, always have to read stuff you guys put out. Um, to just uh, kind of along the same lines of three-point variance, I'm a uh, big Mavericks fan, and recently they have cracked in like the top five of defensive rating. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of wondering if is three point variance a part of that? I know in a lot of their recent wins, opponents have shot very poorly from three point range, and I don't, I don't know if it's is there more of a schematic something that's happening there. If you guys have noted, took note of anything that's happening like that, or is it more like due to variance and this will come down because not exactly a team of defensive specialists. So it's kind of wondering where, where that's coming from. If you guys have an answer to that. Sure. So a couple, couple things there. First, I think that they have, they have some decent defensive pieces. I think healthy. Um, I think that like a, like a front court pairing of, of uh, Porzingis and, and, and Maxi Cleva is actually like that's a that's a that's a decent start to pretty mobile guys who are especially in uh, you know you uh, like you kind of expect Porzingis to be a good good uh, have good ability to defend and deter shots at the rim just because of his size but that's something when he's been healthy Cleva has actually been really good at he's been kind of a, a, a sneaky effective player that way for much of his career so that's that's a that's a decent building block. Um, um, in terms of of and and I haven't I haven't studied the Mavericks like recent run extensively, but the, the thing you kind of look at is um, you kind of want to okay on one hand jump, sh- jump opponent jump shooting can be highly variable, but it's a process thing. Like, are you giving up a lot of shots at the rim and corner threes? Like that's almost a quick and dirty. If you're if you're seeing low rates of those. And and low rates of those, and, and and maybe toss in like free throw attempts. Like then you feel pretty good about your your process, and you know the kinds of things that, um, to the extent that we've picked out the kinds of things that can tend to suppress uh, like three point percentage overall. It's also the kinds of things that lead to lower kind of shot quality overall. Like you know you're getting you know you're bumping cutters, getting hands on passes, stuff like that. So. Um, Without uh, 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 you know uh, apologies that I haven't I haven't studied them recently, but those are those are the things I would look at to know if it's something that you believe in or something you don't. Um, it's sort of an interesting conundrum that's come up is that um, now that every team kind of knows they want to shoot threes and kind of offense is again more determined by talent than it is by sort of gaming the math. Um, there isn't actually much relationship between offensive shot quality and and shooting efficiency, but there's still a great deal of, of correlation between the shots you allow and your your uh, your overall def- defensive your overall level of defense, uh, which is which is one of those kind of like paradoxes of, of of sports stats that that like makes all of it so interesting to me. Costa, what, what kind of thoughts do you, do you have? Do you have thoughts on the Mavericks? Uh, the only, you know, the only thing I was going to say is, uh, you know, I'm just looking quickly there. You know, their their opponent uh, three point percentage is like thirty four percent. That's 
a little bit uh, better than average. It's not preposterous or anything. Right. It, it doesn't strike me that you know maybe their recent run is is running hot, so to speak. But it's not like uh, obviously like that their se- that their season level is unsustainable. Um, and you know, like you said, they they have some some pieces. Um, I don't want to call you call Luca a defensive stopper or anything here, but uh, you know, one of the things like Luca in particular has uh, never graded quite as uh, as strongly uh, in like Darko Darko's metrics uh, as his reputation as as his reputation, and a lot of that is driven by defensive issues. I mean, off, on offense he's like a top five guy, uh, but on defense he's really held back, and so it, it doesn't. It doesn't take like a huge shift. Like if Luca's become like, you know, five percent better on defense or something, uh, just a little bit better, that could be like pushing them up uh, when you when you're starting from a fairly low level. Yeah, and I and also, I mean, they do. I think that they they have some decent defenders in a regular season setting around them. Like I think in a regular like a regular season setting, like is is Reggie Bullock elite? No, is he? Is he solid? Yeah, Finney Smith is. I think is pretty good. Um, in the right, in, in in against like non kind of elite burner point guards, I think um, uh, Jalen Brunson can hold up okay. I think against the better teams, as we saw in the playoffs last year, he maybe doesn't hold up as well. But you know, um, I, and that kind of leads me to another kind of point of speculation is that we're probably seeing a lot of teams like having some good defensive success just because there's a lot of talent that hasn't been on the floor for the last three, four weeks. And that's, and I think that, that you have to, you have to uh, acknowledge that kind of changes the environment. And then there's sort of, there's, there's defensive schemes and defensive players that, that can, that can be very effective against kind of lower level and sub NBA kind of, players and then you you take them against like you know the top third of the league the the, the teams that are going to be in the second round of the playoffs and maybe it doesn't work as well and again i don't know if that applies to dallas or not but that's just one of those things that you do you do look for i mean i think you know we talked about uh, memphis earlier and their defense being better i think they've definitely benefited from that some while also probably playing a little bit def- better defense themselves as with most things it's it's probably some of both and like Figuring out how much of each is sort of the uh, the trickiness. Yeah, this is going to be a major modeling challenge because, like, all these models are sort of built around well here an NBA level of competition. You know, we can adjust for what NBA you know the players you're playing against. That's you know how our RAPM works and a bunch of metrics work. Uh, but there, it's sort of like within an assumption of normality, uh, and when all of a sudden. Uh, on any given night, you might be playing like the process Sixers, and you're playing that team like three nights a week. Uh, it, it could sort of stretch those assum- those modeling assumptions, and that's going to be something that uh, I think a lot of modelers are going to need to be careful about uh, for these playoffs. Yeah, what like that's almost that's going to be a, an interesting thing to kind of look back on after after this season is there might just there might just be sort of, certain sort of thresholds where. Like okay, this is at a certain point of of whether it's number of guys or amount of talent or amount of certain kinds of skill sets on the floor. Like at a certain point, it's not just like a linear decline in 
like the offensive ability of the other team. It's all of a sudden, this is not an NBA offense we're playing. And that's just a categorically different thing. Um, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know where that, that threshold is, but like, you know, if you have three guys who don't really belong on the court, like it's possible you're just, your offense just won't function no matter how good the other two guys are. Or, or unless you have just like, I, I mean, I think, and, and the caveat for that would be like, you know, the, the sort of the Kevin Durant asterisks, right? <laughs> like yeah. you have, you have one guy who can get a good shot, like literally every time down the floor within like constraints of fatigue. Um, yeah, let me. That's a that's a that's a good segue to something that I've sort of been um, like I've been noodling on for basically like a season and a half at this point. I uh, um, in kind of the the intro to my book, I I, I was I was worried. I was you know lamenting that you know the, the 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 stats that were coming during the season in which I was writing the book, the 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 twenty twenty one season. Like we're probably gonna like discount these in the future because the environment is different. And now, once we get back to like normal basketball in twenty twenty one twenty two, you know, we'll see where things really are. And then, then the last you know six weeks have happened, and and oops. Um, so, like, what what tools would you even use to go about? Like, this is something again we've 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 talked about this a lot. Like, what's a you know the, the, there was an expression we used when I was with the Bucks that we we talked about you know. There's always this phenomenon where, you know, when the 10-day contracts start late in the season, that these guys that are excelling in fake games, like, how would you come up with some sort of either a binary or even like a fake game index to to almost grade these the, the level of performance against these, 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 these situational weirdnesses where, like, the context of these games is just so far outside normal range of NBA play? Yeah, so I've been kicking this around. The, the idea I've been trying to I've been trying to uh, source data right now on like players on ten day contracts uh, historically, and I want to like sort of add in a feature for <laughs> how many what what percent of opponent minutes uh, were played by guys who have been on a ten day contract this year. Um, and I'm hoping uh, that like maybe that gives a little bit of signal somewhere. Um, you know, it's going to be 10 day contracts, two ways, all, all those guys. Um, and that, that's one possibility. Um, but I need to see, you know, obviously this data is going to, this year is going to be at an all time high in that, that respect. Uh, but hopefully like there's been other, I'm just trying to think there's probably been other times, you know, like, like you said, late in the season, uh, where we can sort of see that the predictive power of those kinds of minutes decreases. So, let, let, let me ask you further about that is uh, you sort of you mentioned earlier that a lot of 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 the, the, the sort of the predictive stuff you're, you're that you work on is sort of built on an assumption that that, you know, unlike, you know, uh, you know financial advisors who advertise on TV, uh, past results are indi- indicative of future performance. And um, I'm wondering, like, you know, it, broadly speaking, um how do you like continue to check a whether that's still true b whether the assumptions that would make that true are either present or not yeah i mean so i ran into an issue there this year with uh generally the the league environment around fouls um you know so darko darko uh has an estimate of where the league average is and that that estimate uh 
accounts for, you know, in-season seasonality where, like, you know, efficient, uh, offensive efficiency starts low uh, and then increases uh, throughout the year, sort of reaching a threshold. Um, and it accounts for all that. But this year, uh, you know, famously, like, you know, uh, there was a, a, lot, a lot fewer fouls being, being called. And Darko was just way behind. It was just, like, couldn't catch up to how, how much the league seemed to have changed. Um, and... It, I I don't know of any way of tracking that other than sort of by hand. Like you got to just like watch out to, uh, <laughs> to see when your model is is missing. Um, uh, it, when your model is missing, and like you got to try to ascertain like what's causing it. Is it just noise? Are you seeing like a one one in a hundred year kind of variance? You know that seems unlikely. Uh, and then you got to find, well, find the, the cause. Getting back to uh, <laughs> I mean it, I mean in uh, like not to be dark about it but in some ways we literally are seeing like a a one in a hundred year kind of kind of variant in environments but yeah, yeah go, that's sorry, true. Go ahead. On, on the well that that's that's true on on uh on the home court stuff certainly like playing without a you know we, we all set a scenario where we're playing without fans and trying to figure out what is the value of home court it's been sort of trending down from three and a half points to like two and a half points and then the last year there's no fans like how do you how do you deal with how do you deal with that? Do you project it to be worth zero? That seems that doesn't seem right. But like, and how do you balance ten games of no fans, etc.? Um, but and with, how do you, you know, how do you balance like the if uh, <laughs> if if Toronto is playing in Tampa? How do you balance those fans? Like that's not like these aren't exactly it's it, like it's a home game, but it's not it's not probably not really a home game because like what you know what. Uh, you know, I guess back in the day when when the uh, the the, the uh, I guess there were, there were the Hornets at the time. Now the Pelicans when they when they played in Oklahoma City for for a little bit, like Oklahoma City like embraced them. But I don't I don't really think we saw that with the Tampa Raptors last year. Yeah, and the and the answer this is again maybe getting at our predictive versus descriptive point like the answer is like we'll never really know uh what, what the answer is because it's just like well we've got some data the sample is gonna you know we can analyze it torture it at whatever we want but the sample is gonna be small um and you know we're never really gonna tease that out and you know even if there is like another situation uh where a team is playing at home on the road uh, you know, is it going to be a, you know, we're going to have to like have a variable for, are they embraced by the fans? Uh, it's, it's just like there, it becomes very much of an art rather than sort of a science. And I, I think I don't, at least I don't know a way around that issue. Uh, you, you have to be flexible. And if your model is generating like very strange outputs, you have to sort of discount it. Well, let's actually, you, you, you mentioned earlier about, well, when your model is wrong, um, how do you know? How do you know if your if your model is wrong versus you've actually discovered something that goes against your priors and you need to readjust to the new reality? Uh, well, you can you can sort of model uh, how much variance you're expecting to see, and so like are the uh, the results you're seeing sort of consistent with you know is there a one in a hundred chance of seeing the results that you're, you've been observed within your model? Is it a one in a thousand? Um, the sort of free throw variance we were seeing was sort of at the tail end, at the tail end of, of what uh, I thought it seemed to be plausible. And it, it does seem clearly clear that like the officials were doing some stuff uh, <laughs> like, you know, reducing uh, 
reducing uh, certain kind of call, kinds of calls. Yeah. Um, but then you you overcorrect for that, and like well, the official, and then if the officials decide they don't want to like keep up on that point of emphasis, you're going to overcorrect the other way. Um, you know, so. Let me, can I j- jump in yeah. there? Just like, is that what we've seen? Like, that was something I speculated on early in the years. Like, normally we see like a point of emphasis is calling like more travels at the start of the year. So for the first three weeks of the season, you see a lot of, a lot more travels called and then it like tails off and hits, you know, historical levels. Is that, do you think we've, we've kind of seen that with, uh, with foul rates and free throw rates this year or has the, has the, um, has the rate kind of normalized to a, or or, or, or converged to a, a more within historical norms level? Um, and even if it has, does that indicate that the officiating has changed or the players have adjusted? It's not knowable, I suppose. But like, so only ask, only ask, like we're never going to be answer the totally answer the, the 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 sort of the causation question of that. But in terms of what has happened, like what can you tell me about about uh, that sort of environmental factor. Yeah, I mean, the last time I looked, it does seem it does seem like the environment sort of normalized a little a little more, uh, and that uh, whether the players learned new ways to to trick the refs into calling fouls, or the refs just gave up on the point of emphasis, like we, we have been seeing uh, more fouls being called. Um, and, you know, we're, we're never really going to know, uh, at least I will not, uh, with, from a purely analytics point of view, what, what happened there. Um, Sentiment I, analysis on Twitter. Yeah, no, <laughs> like exactly. People not complaining about, that's not a basketball play, nearly as much. Uh, you know, but I was pretty shocked. It was uh, like I'd, I'd heard about the, you know, that they were going to reduce these kinds of calls, and I was pretty shocked. It was so effective uh, at the start of the year. I was like, I didn't know you could just ask the ask the refs to like do a better job, and they do it. Uh, I, I don't think. I mean, I think before before like Evan Wash calls me up and yells at me. I don't like. I think it's it's not so much that they. I think it's actually they changed the interpretation of the rules that the refs were told to enforce more more than it was like. Hey, get these calls right. I think, I think, unfortunately, like the the the, uh, the foul seeking behavior we have last year was officiated correctly, largely under the guidance they were given, and that guidance has been has been changed to sort of recalibrate that. So, I, so don't yell at me, Evan. Um, yeah, no, anyway, I go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah. I was being a little sarcastic there. I appreciate they they changed the guidance, but in some ways, it's like. I didn't know that you know the game is the game happens so quickly uh, that I was I was surprised the refs were able to like you know they've been trained on a certain kind of foul foul on a, at a game that happens very very quickly in front of their eyes I was surprised that they were able to to make that kind of adjustment uh, on the fly. Yeah, that's a that, that is a good good question. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to broach sort of a a. Uh, um, a third topic, which is, is, you know, we've talked a lot about essentially like two kinds of, of uh, analysis of modeling of, of what have you, which is the descriptive and the predictive. And there's sort of a, a third one that, that is, is pretty important to take into account. Um, that's really hard to do, which is, which is, I guess the, the causal or even the counterfactual, um, like you know what the, the sort of the what could have happened under different circumstances um 
like, have you done any sort of work in that area or and, and what kinds of things would you think would be needed from a data perspective to to almost better address that? Because I, I think that's a, a hugely sort of, um, you know, uh, even getting to, especially getting to defense, getting to the impact of individual player defense, you almost need to 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 uh, to understand that the roads not traveled. Yeah, I mean that that is like you said that's the uh, that's the holy grail one could say um, where you're moving from prediction to causal inference, and you know Darko is very much a predictive model. It is not a, a causal inference kind of model. Um, the, the example I give is. Um, Darko, Darko's player impact metric uses minutes. Uh, even uses like how tall you are. You know, your height is a feature in the model, um, and that's a great predictive uh, predictive feature. Um, but it's not really necessarily well. Maybe uh, certainly minutes are, are not causal. Like if a player moves uh, from playing thirty minutes to ten minutes a game his permanent impact doesn't necessarily change, but Darko's view of him is going to change dramatically because it's like a proxy for what the coach thinks. Uh, and the coach knows how good the players are. Um, so yeah, Darko is definitely on the predictive side. You know, there's people doing great work, you know, Kathy uh, Evans with the wizards is, uh, I think the, probably the biggest name in the public space for this. Um, I, I have, Stayed away from it mostly on the NBA side. I, I would like to uh, maybe get into it at some point, uh, but it's it's it takes brighter minds than mine. It's it's really quite hard. Are there are there any any of the the sort of the alphabet soup of metrics that are out there right now that at least sort of sort of head fake towards towards causal inference? Um, I mean, is, is is something like I think we've. It's sort of been established at this point that the uh, estimated plus minus EPM uh, created by uh, Taylor Snarr, who used to work for the Jazz, um, has, has probably been the the most robustly predictive of these sort of common models. Um, is even something like that? Does that is is can we go so far as to say that like okay, that's something that that can at least indicate this team is playing well because of this player, or is that even? Still a little too blunt to to be more than than sort of uh, predictive that teams will continue to play well with this player on the floor, and even what the distinction between that that is, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. So I, to, to answer, I go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say, you know, I don't think Taylor hasn't like made his uh, model coefficients public or anything, but <laughs> from my uh, from my looking at it, I'm, I'd be I, I'm sort of. I don't think it's very it's built in a very causal yeah. inference sort of way. I'm thinking back to like last year, you know, through through like ten or twenty games or maybe even thirty games, he had like Mike Conley as the number one player, number two player in the league. Um, and you know, maybe that was the case. Uh, you know, that that's like uh, gets more at the predictive versus descriptive. Like EPM is probably my favorite descriptive metric of like Conley was crushing it. Um, but maybe not necessarily like, I don't know if anyone, I don't know if Taylor would have said like Conley is going to be predicted as his number two guy going forward or anything. Right. That, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's sort of the, 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 the problem there is not just, not just that, uh, this player has been impactful and we think will continue to be impactful, but like, why? So if you like something, 
uh, I guess a good place to, to close up actually is, 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 is more research that you've done that, uh, you know, what, what happens to the, what's the effect of a, of the, of a player's kind of quote unquote impact when they change roles. And I guess the best way to, to like identify players who change roles are players who have, uh, who have changed or, or change context at least, if not roles, because role is a squishy term, but, uh, are players who've changed teams. So kind of, kind of walk, walk us through a little bit of kind of what you found in, in that area. Yeah, so uh, for Darko, um, what I do is I look when one of two things happens. Well, either you change teams uh, or what happens when you change coaches. Um, and the impact ends up being uh, fairly similar. Changing coaches is not quite as big a deal, but similar conceptually. Um, it, the, it's like a, the impact tends to be you regress to the mean somewhat, but you also just get a bit worse as, as a rule. So it's like, it's a, in modeling terms, it's a, there's a multiplicative and an additive effect where I sort of multiply your impact by some regression of the mean factor. And then I, you know, also just subtract a little. Um, and that's not always going to be the case. Uh, that's not, that's a rough mean to describe like the population average. Uh, but like when LeBron changes teams, that obviously is not going to be a great uh, a great indicator there. Um, well, because he's because he, he's he's sort of he is the context. Like there's, yeah, there's exactly. these yeah. very top players kind of are the context, so that it kind of travels with them. I think that like the the way I've tried to, and maybe we'll maybe we'll finish up talking about you know coming back to the the you know the interpretability and kind of the the like how to approach putting you know for lack of a better term, narratives on these things. I've, I, I sort of, my, my thought process behind um, why that might be is, um, you know, the guys who are playing well enough to be on one team, you know, playing enough to show up in models and then are considered good enough to go to another team and continue to do so, it's more likely than not that they're in sort of an above-average uh, situation for themselves, whether it's because because of experience or familiarity or whatever, or just that they there's there's sort of a number of players, especially after you get past the top, I don't know, hundred twenty five, hundred fifty or so, that are very close in terms of quote unquote ability between one hundred and fifty and say six hundred in the world. If you could if you could somehow line them up, and so the guys who are showing up as like you know. The, if you could theoretically rank them this way, the 175th best player in the world, um, if there's not really actually that much difference between him and the 350th best player in the world, if he's showing up at his 175th best, he's probably in a favorable environment. And if he's probably in a favorable environment, he moves, he's probably moving to, it's almost a Monty Hall problem, right? He's, he's moving to what is more likely uh, an un, a less favorable environment. I like that analogy, and I, I think that's probably right. Yeah, that when that door is proverbially opened, uh, you know, he might might end up uh, moving down it. Um, yeah, I, I think that makes sense to me intuitively. Uh, I don't have strict research as to like what the cause is, and that gets to your causal inference uh, point. Um, it's uh, in a predictive point of view. We, we uh, this is something we've observed. What the cause is, uh, you know, that, that is a good avenue for research. So to to finish up on that point, um, this is probably something is you're you're much more sort of quantitatively in, in, in inclined or uh, 
uh, capable even <laughs> than I am. But um, the ability to sort of uh, to put this narrative, to put this story, to put a to create a plausible story about why this thing is—is is that something you? Uh, first of all, is that something you you uh, find enjoyable? You struggle with, or, or is that something you even think is important? Um, I I find it for myself. I find it important to be able to come up with a plausible mechanism to kind of convince myself that I haven't just kind of like measured atmospheric noise, if you will. Um, but what are sort of what are your what's your approach there? Yeah, I, I put a lot of emphasis on having some kind of plausible causal mechanism around, around a statistical result. Um, I'm very reluctant to add things uh, to Darko and, and to my models, which are pure sort of like black matter, uh, where, you know, I just have no idea what's going on. I can't think of a reason why it's true, but it just seems to be the case that um, players play worse on Tuesdays. Uh, you know, at some points I kicked around. Is, is there a day is there a specific is there a specific example you found? Is is like day of the week something that you've you found? Yeah, that, that was uh, that was one. Yeah, that I, I looked at uh, day of the week effects uh, to see like yeah should I uh, um, should should I include that in my model for like stripping out context? You know, and uh, I, I can't remember what days of the week, but there is like a real pattern uh, historically. Uh, you know, and I thought about it as like, is it, there's the, there's the weekend games that just have something to do with like maybe players stay out too late or something, uh, before playing in New York, that kind of stuff. National TV, maybe like, you know, like if if there's only four games on a, on a third, on Thursdays, is, is there sort of a, because you're trying to get the right matchups or something, is there something weird going on in those games or something? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's totally plausible that there's there is something real there, um, and like we talked about earlier, like you just need more granular data uh, than I was than I was looking at to to tease out whether or not the result I'm observing is is meaningful. At the high level, I was just like very reluctant to add in this kind of like day of the week effect. That would be it would just be, it would create for a very fragile model where I don't understand what's driving this. And then getting back to our earlier discussion of like, if something changes, if like the national TV schedule changes, my model is now based around some factors that I've, I've implicitly assumed are going to be the same and they're no longer the same. Um, like it just, it, it creates for a, a very fragile model. Um, and so I, I really try to avoid that stuff. I need to have some kind of internal causal mechanism to describe the underlying system we're observing. Sure. Uh, as we're wrapping up here, if anyone else in the audience has any more questions, uh, now'd be a great time to jump in the queue, but if not, we'll, uh, We'll wrap soon. And since, uh, since, you know, you've, you've, uh, recently been in the business of making predictions, uh, I'll, I'll give you the floor to uh, to to make uh, one or more bold predictions for the rest of the season. Really, uh, just spring this on you and put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, my, my, I think my my biggest out of the money prediction. I don't know if it's out of the money. Is uh, Ben Simmons will not be traded. Okay. Um, I think they're they're going to hold him through the trade deadline. Uh, I, I think I would agree with that one actually. Okay, maybe maybe that's closer to a consensus view. No, uh, I do, I no, I, I think it's it's distinctly non-consensus view. But I but you know I think that there's um there's this is almost a behavioralist kind of thing. Like you know I think um you know maybe for maybe for twenty seven of the thirty GMs like you would exp- you would think that there's a strong kind of uh, 
social pull almost of, of getting the trade done. And for maybe three of them, one of whom happens to be the GM in Philly, like there's just like less caring, less, uh, less, less just cares less. Like, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know who we would name, but if it was like, I think we could start with like Maury and Presti and Ujiri. And I think that's a, a reasonable set of guys who just wouldn't give a crap about <laughs> about like sort of the external factors and the and the optics of it. Yeah, exactly. He he doesn't care about the optics, and you know Simmons's value is like got to be at an year. Like he's got three years after this, he can unless he gets a player, he can get a player who's gonna you know take the Sixers to the next level. Right. I, I don't think he's got a reason to to panic because he's he can run out this absurd like, yeah. situation into next year if you want. Right. It's it's so much of it has been, well, you can't waste the year of Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid's prime. Is getting CJ McCollum meaningfully like uh, changing the Sixers' outlook towards being a, a contender in this year of Joel Embiid's prime? And if so, if that's, if that's like the best deal that's on the table, like like okay, you don't you can't waste a year of 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 Embiid's prime, but what are your what what's the actual thing you can do that doesn't? Um, is is sort of like again we talked earlier about threshold issues for you know who's on the floor. I think there's a threshold issue for what Maury's willing to take back, and I and I think if that had been met, he would have been traded already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't help that CJ has been hurt. Uh, yeah. maybe we'll see that CJ deal when he comes back. I would, I would, I, I think I would be surprised by that. I'll, I'll, I'll say that I would be surprised if the deal ended up being like a like a like a Simmons for for McCollum deal. I think that I would be I would be surprised if without like significant incentives, Philly would would want would do that sort of deal. But that's you know now we're in the range of realm of pure speculation. Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you time for one more, and then we'll get out of here. Uh. The other one I'll throw out there is uh, I think Kyrie's going to get vaccinated. Uh, I think he's going to play uh, play a home game. I, I just can't see the situation uh, continuing like this. So did you did you see it came out today that there's apparently been reporting that like he can actually if they pay a fine, if he or they pays like a pretty nominal fine, uh, that that like escalates to up to five thousand per offense. Uh, that they can, that they might be able to do that. I don't. I haven't. I don't. I haven't sourced that that reporter or know if it's the, the veracity of it or not. But that's like, like. Well, I guess he's playing home games now. If it's if it's going to cost, <laughs> you know, if it's going to cost like a tenth of a luxury suite for the uh, for for one game for the the for for him to be on the court. I that's like you know. I guess that's I guess that's going to happen regardless. So, but yeah, yeah I, I I didn't see that report, but that. Uh... I'm intrinsically sort of skeptical because I feel like if that was the case, he would have already been playing. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it seemed like sort of a, a new thing. I mean, you, you may have heard that there's a new mayor in New York, and they would like yeah. to get their they would like to get their swagger back. So, you know, what better way to up the swagger quotient than you know? Anyway, yeah, so this, this isn't that kind of podcast, so let's not go there. Um, uh, Costa, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks for uh, coming on. I think that. Uh, at some point in the not too distant future, we'll we'll do it again. Especially if you uh, if you have uh, you know 
some some interesting findings you'd like to share with people. I think these are the the predictive versus descriptive conundrum is a is a fa- uh, fascinating topic which I'm going to be talking to people about uh, basically for as long as I'm doing this pod. I think um, so. Yeah, thanks a lot for for coming on and really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Thanks, folks, and uh, join me on Friday when uh, when the podium bear himself, Matt Morge, uh, comes on to uh, yell at me about Rudy Gobert. Uh, take care, everyone. Be safe out there.